0: In Ecclesiastes, we have been seeing the world as it is. It is an honest book that lays bare the world. He uses the phrase many times in Ecclesiastes of living life under the sun. In other words, in a fallen world from this man, human depraved point of view, we see the brokenness of this world. It's a world filled with struggles, pain, a world filled with sin, a world filled with people chasing after empty promises, pursuing things as their God instead of pursuing God as their God. And in chapter 7, kind of the focus shifts a little bit and it gets to be very much on practical application, namely on how to live wisely in this world under the sun. We may need to be reminded this morning that Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature. So when you think of Job and Psalms and Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes is right there, the wisdom literature of the Bible. So when we come to it, um, we need to know that what the author wants us to get from this book is how to live more wisely. And in this case, he's saying, hey, in a fallen and broken world where life can feel meaningless and, and futile disconnected from God, how are we to live? And chapter 7 intensely focuses on living wisely. One of the major themes of the chapter is simply, you'll see, especially in the first half, is some things are better than other things. <laughs> uh, wisdom is better than folly. Wisdom is better than foolishness. Wisdom is better than sinfulness. And that's one of the major themes here of chapter 7. Is He wants us to know that wisdom, the way of wisdom, is better. Understanding God's ways and applying God's ways and God's rules and God's statutes and God's Word and living according to the light of the Word of God is a way better way to live than foolishness. In our current cultural climate, we could use some wisdom. We're in difficult times as a nation. People made in the image of God, it seems like, just dying way too soon, way too often. We've experienced it in our city and now in other places. There's a lot of rhetoric going around. Words many times are, are many in times like these when they probably should be fewer. We need to be the people who speak wisely when we speak to issues like this. And the people who speak lovingly. Our neighbors are hurting. They're scared. They're fearful. Maybe you are this morning. Because when we look around us, our world's a hot mess. It just is. And we need truth this morning. We need love. Really, we need Jesus. And Jesus, the Bible tells us in the New Testament, is the personification of wisdom. That's why wisdom is a spiritual issue. Do you understand that? Sometimes we take books like Proverbs and we put them over here. Ecclesiastes, whatever, but Proverbs is what we tend to think of when we think of the wisdom literature. We tend to put it over here. And we tend to think spiritual stuff and put it over here. So over here you've got wisdom things and you think about some of the Proverbs and how it talks about dealing with your money or dealing with your job or dealing with your neighbor or dealing with your tongue. And over here you've got spiritual issues like salvation and sin and, and dealing with all these things. And we tend to kind of do this. And the Bible doesn't do that because in the Bible what we learn is that Jesus is the personification of wisdom. Therefore, wisdom is a spiritual issue. So sometimes you find somebody and it seems like their life's erect and they just can't seem to get things straight. You look at them and you think, well, they just keep making unwise choice after unwise choice. That's a spiritual issue. It's a sin issue. And so we need wisdom because God wants us to walk in wisdom and wisdom is a spiritual issue. Wisdom is a Jesus issue. And chapter 7 is to help us live wisely. He shares with us what's better. He focuses on wise living in light of It focuses on wisdom in the sense of wise living, in the sense of how we think about and relate to God and how we look at and think about humanity in light of human depravity. Kind of some big chunks there that we're going to go through. And so we need wisdom. We need God. We need to be mindful of our own sinfulness and the broken world around us. And so this text is uh, important for us this morning. So what I'm going to do is I'm just, rather than just read the whole chapter at once because we can kind of forget what we've read, we're going to kind of read it chunk by chunk as we walk through the message together this morning because we are going to get through the whole chapter Lord willing. So the first thing I want you to see is in this better, this idea that wisdom is better and we need to walk in wisdom. First thing we see here in verses uh, in this first section here is that is this idea of walking in wisdom toward in our, our life, our life decisions, the way we conduct ourselves in life, wisdom toward life. Look at verses one through four. A good name is better than precious ointment in the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. the heart of the wise is in the house of the morning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. So the first thing he's saying there about having wisdom towards life is that we need to take life seriously. We need to take life seriously, and he's saying you need to you need to be able to learn from even something like death. You know, you begin in verse 1, a good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. What's he saying there? Well, remember, you get your name, you begin building your name and reputation. You get your name, but your reputation is really what he's aiming at here. You begin building that from birth, right? But it's not really finalized until you die. And up until that point, we can do all sorts of things to build our reputation or ruin our reputation, but then, then at some point we finish the race. And here, I believe the, the, the aim is on the idea that just, that the, there's such a value on your name and on your reputation and on finishing well, especially in Old Testament times, especially in their, in their culture at this particular time. Uh, a precious ointment, I mean, these ointments were, were very valuable in those days. It was a status symbol to have things like this. And he says, your good name's better than that. The Bible tells us in Proverbs, a good name is better than riches, better than silver, better than gold. And so, and, and we don't really finish building that name until the end of our life. But at the same time, He is beginning to focus us on thinking about the brevity of our lives as we see through verses 2-4. through four. He says it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. There's more to learn from a funeral, He's saying, than from a birthday party. He says... Everyone's going to die and the living will take it to heart. The psalmist is praying, the psalmist prayed this way, teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And so you see throughout Ecclesiastes him calling us to do that. He says sorrow is better than laughter. The word for sorrow here can also be translated anger. The idea is that life is not a joke. It's not is not that you're supposed to be sad all the time. That's not what he's getting at. It, he's, he's fighting against this idea of living life like a fool who takes nothing seriously, who just kind of goes through life not really thinking deeply or seriously about anything that laughs everything off. Life's a joke to them. He's fighting against that, right? Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, talking about mourning over our sin. And so there's a time and a place in life to mourn and to weep and and, and to have sorrow and to have anger. There are times, right times, for those things. And it really summarizes the section there in verse 4. It says the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Which is joy and, and just sort of a, a, a celebratory time. The point is there's something to be learned in the difficult spots in life, even death. I've never went to a birthday party and walked away from it and thought, you know, that really got me thinking. That birthday party. Ever since that birthday party, I've just been thinking I'm going to do some things. I've never happened. Maybe it happened for you. But you'll leave funerals that way many times. There is something to be learned even in those times, these times. But He also wants us to be teachable. He wants us to learn from a rebu- rebuke. Look at verses 5 and 6 with me. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This Also is vanity. People that take life seriously understand that sometimes we need to be rebuked. Everybody does. He's saying, I'd rather have a wise man give me hard words I need to hear than have a foolish man praise me all day. Imagine a young man goes out and begins to make some foolish decisions. It's not too hard to imagine, right? And there's one group of buddies that will gather around him wherever they might gather around and he begins to tell them some of the foolish decisions he's making. There is a certain type of group that will high-five him and say, it's about time you loosened up a little bit. And there's another person that will pull him aside and say, you're acting like a fool. You need to repent. And will give him hard words. And he's saying, you know, what, you, know, you know who the true friend is? You know what you should long for? It's the person that will give you rebu- rebuke when you need rebuke. The person that will say hard things. Hard words help keep hearts soft. If we refuse to be willing to listen to hard words, our hearts will grow hard. And sometimes we all need hard words delivered in love and in wisdom. He says, "It's it's the, you want to hear the rebuke from the wise, he says. Not from the jerk. Right? Not from the bully. From the wise, he says, is who you want to hear this rebuke from. So we need to be teachable. We also need to be patient in life. If we're going to live wisely. He says in verse 7, Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Verses 8 and 9, Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry. For anger lodges in the heart of fools. In verse 7 there, when he talks about oppression, it likely is talking about blackmail and robbery. That's a shortcut to getting things done in an unethical and sinful way. It's corruptive and it turns the wise, he says, mad. In verse 8, he kind of ties back to verse 1. He's pointing to the need for patience to see things through. It's not how you start, it's how you finish. A lack of patience is a sign of pride. The proud makes demands. They grow impatient. The patient wait on the Lord. The patient wait on others. Wise people are patient people. And then in verse 9, he continues this theme by warning against becoming angry quickly. There's a time and place for righteous anger, but we have to be careful because as people marred by sin, even our righteous anger can quickly turn into sinful anger. Hence the Bible says, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Anger, he says, lodges in the heart of fools. In other words, it gets stuck there. The foolish person abides in anger and they become increasingly angry and ultimately become bitter. Maybe you know people like that. Have you ever met someone eat up with anger that's turned to bitterness? They let stuff that's happened decades ago continue to ruin their life. Right? Not because it has to in this situation, but because they just continue to live there. They continue to stay there. They won't let go of that. and They just continue to let the anger build. He says the anger lodges in the hearts of fools. Maybe we have anger we need to deal with this morning. Who's our anger aimed toward? Family. That happens a lot. Spouses, parents, children. children towards parents. Co-workers, neighbors, whoever it may be. He says, man, anger lodges in the heart of a fool. He wants us to be wise. Patient people aren't quick to get angry. The Bible says be slow to speak, slow to anger. The wrath, the anger, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. In James, it tells us. We need to be a patient people. Not quick to give up, not quick to take the shortcut, and not quick to get angry. Uh, We need to have a long fuse. We also need to learn to to just simply value wisdom. Look at verses 10-12. through Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. In verse 10, he warns against living in the past. Why were the former days better? And asking that and living that way all the time. He's not saying you can't remember the past. He's not saying you shouldn't have fond memories. He can not saying you can't honor the past. He is saying you cannot live there and be wise. He says, why were the former days better than these? Don't ask that. It's not from wisdom that you ask that. Why? Because you have to live in today. If you don't live in today, you won't be prepared for tomorrow and for the future. And we get stuck in situations and we begin to live in the past if we're not careful. We begin to value one stage of life over another stage of life, but the kids aren't home anymore. You're at a different place in your marriage than you were back then. You don't have that job anymore. You don't make that much money anymore. Things aren't like they used to be. And you had problems in those days too. You just forgotten. We've glamorized things. We need to live in today. If you live in the past, you'll not be prepared for the future. We have to deal with reality. But Beware of good old days syndrome. We can all do that. And listen, depends on who you ask if the good old days were really the good old days. For some, maybe the good old days were the good old days for you, but maybe they were miserable for your neighbor. Live in today. Verses eleven and twelve, wisdom is valuable and we need to value it. He says he kind of compares it to money, and his point is just as money kind of offers a protection in life, there's a is a tool that can be used. Wisdom is a tool that can offer protection in life. He says it can preserve your life. So he wants us to be patient, slow to anger, to live in the day, to live wisely, to value and treasure wisdom. He wants us to approach life with wisdom, and he kind of tells us what that looks like and what's better than and what's worse. But secondly. Kind of changes gear in verse 13. He starts focusing on wisdom towards God and how we approach God. Look at verses 13 and 14. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what He has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after Him. Here he's talking about we need to consider the sovereignty of God. These verses are kind of in the center of the chapter and they are key. Without pausing to consider God and His work, we'll never take life seriously. And as we're going to see here in a little bit, we'll never take sin seriously. In the answer to the question in verse 13, who can make straight what God has made crooked is no one. Now, he's not talking about crooked as in sinful He's talking about the things that perplex you, that are inscrutable, that you just can't understand and you can't wrap your mind around. There are some things in life you're never going to understand and that we'll never fully have answer to here. God is sovereign over all things, but, but I'm not and you're not. God knows all, but I don't and you don't. And we will never be able to figure out what God doesn't want us to figure out. He has made some things crooked. He has made it so that you don't know everything. He has made it so that you can't figure everything out. Deuteronomy says the secret things belong to the Lord. There are some things that just belong to Him. So we need to consider that God is sovereign, that He has authority and He is in control and He does what He does. And there are some things that we just won't figure out. In verse 14, He says, When times are good, rejoice, but at the same time know that there's much to learn from the days of adversity. Right? In the day of adversity, consider this. God made one as well as the other. God is sovereign over both. He's saying there's something to to learn and to grow from when things are great and when things are bad. In the good times and the bad times, God is sovereign and there's something for us to learn to walk in wisdom in both days. Because we don't know what tomorrow holds. You know the old saying, but we know who holds tomorrow. Any given day, we could wake up and it could hold prosperity or adversity for us. And we're told to walk with God and look to Him in both of those situations. Then in verses 15-18, through he focuses on considering our need for God, I believe here. Look at verse 15. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Now, verse 15, there are some things that we simply can't explain, right? In the Old Testament at times... A righteous person could refer to the act of being right. It doesn't necessarily have to refer to, like we think of holiness, we think of righteousness in terms of holiness and in godliness, but it can also be in terms of, I'm right and I'm going to see that I'm right, and I'm going to prove that I'm right, so it kind of can have dual terms, so it's kind of hard to know for sure which way he means it, because it can kind of go both ways here. But it's possible here that the focus is on someone who, though being in the right, still perishes in his stand, but It's also possible he could be saying something like this, something else that we know is true. Someone who strives to live right and to live godly and something horrible happens to them and they perish. And someone else who's not even trying to live for the Lord and they live for years and years and years and years. And we see that happen every day in a fallen world. But in verses 16 and 17 we get a little confused because he says, do not be overly righteous. And we're like, well, so what does that mean? A little godliness will do you? It's like you know, that sounds like it sounds like the verse of American Christianity in some ways, but that's not what he's saying. That's not his point. The focus, once again, could be on the need to always be right. Which fits with making yourself to be wise. You never gain by always having to be right and prove yourself right at the same time. Be careful not to throw off right from wrong, obviously. But it could be, and maybe more likely, that he's saying turning. Making the turning of religion and wisdom into a be-all and end-all. We've seen that in Ecclesiastes when he says when you take money and you make it more than money. When you take your job and you make it more than your job. And here he could be saying when you take righteousness and living righteously and living wisely and make it more than what it's supposed to be and you turn it into an idol and you become self-righteous, right? And it's about my righteousness now and the fact that I'm righteous and we know that as a Christian our righteousness is supposed to be found in Christ so he could be speaking against self-righteousness here I believe. Ian Proven said it this way, those who pursue wisdom or righteousness for profit you see that word used throughout Ecclesiastes hoping to gain an edge over God and force His hand are no different, in no different a position than those who pursue foolishness and wickedness. Both are guilty of hubris both are guilty of sin so whether I live in lawlessness or whether I try to live in self-righteousness, kind of getting advantage over God so He has to do good things for me by the way I live, either way, I live in sin. He's urging us towards humility before God. Whether it's admitting, admitting my wrongs or whether it is admitting my need for a righteousness that goes beyond my righteousness. He says you need to fear the Lord. He says that's the answer. Is that we need to walk in the fear of God. That's the point. It's a hard text with a very simple point. Don't be so arrogant and wrapped up in your being right or your self-righteousness or your religious activities that you miss the point which is to live in the fear of God, the worship, the adoration of God. He wants us to take God seriously. He's the source of guidance and wisdom. He's the one that holds the the very days of our lives in His hands. He's the only sovereign and He's the one we must fear and stand in awe for. And when we live life Like we have it all figured out and like we don't need God and like none of His ways are inscrutable to us. Like we hold everything in our hands and we can kind of steer the world where we wish. We're being foolish. And when you think you've got all the answers, you're going to find out at some point you're going to be very frustrated. Because we don't. Life is better when you don't wrestle to try and be God, but rather you take God and you take His sovereignty and you take your need for Him seriously. Thirdly, he focuses on Wisdom toward sin. Verse 19. Long section here. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it? I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, that is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly. But I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. He's calling us to wisdom again there in verse 19 and then in verse 20 He begins to to focus in on approaching sin with wisdom. We have to have a, a wise view of human depravity. And one big focus we see in these passages is that sin and human depravity is universal. Look at verse 20. There is no one who doesn't sin. He says, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Paul said it this way in Romans 3.10, No one is righteous. No, not one. A few verses later he said, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He's echoing the Old Testament. Proverbs, you name it, all throughout the Bible. The Bible is very clear that there is not a righteous person in this room or on this planet that who has not sinned. All have sinned. Sin is a universal problem. It goes across cultures and continents and oceans and races and, and demographics. You name it. Different income levels. Everybody has sinned. And if we aren't honest about the brokenness of the world and the brokenness of those that live in it, our views towards situations and things are going to be very flawed. We're going to be easily manipulated. Political and cultural and philosophical views should reflect an understanding of Ecclesiastes 7.20 that there is not a righteous man on the earth who has not sinned. Our politics, our workplaces, our entertainment, our news stations is all filled with sinners. So we need to understand that. We're sinners. If we live blindly to the sin problem, we will not live wisely. Wise people acknowledge a broken world full of sinful people. Not that people are always 100% of the time being as worse as they could possibly be. Oh my goodness. Thankful for the common grace of God that we're not. Or the world really would be a mess. But that we're all capable of so much sin. And we're all broken and flawed. Verses twenty six through twenty-eight is kind of a difficult text and kind of one that has probably been abused at times. But you have to remember when you read this, when he starts talking about the woman, right? The woman. woman. It's from a man's perspective. A woman would have written this differently. Let me explain. He's not pointing out that women are more sinful than men, first of all. Uh, D.A. Garrett, in his commentary, New American Commentary, explains this very well. So I want to read to you something he said about this. And He actually, I think, went on to write a whole book, or a whole, uh, excuse me, not a book, a whole um, uh, article on this passage. He says, quote, The portrait of a woman as a snare and a trout does not refer to a prostitute or a woman of folly, as of Proverbs nine thirteen through 18 Instead, it refers to a domestic conflict between husband and wife as given from a man's perspective and based on Genesis 3.16. Quote, you will try to, this is his translation, trap your husband, but he will dominate you. In other words, because of sin, married life will be a war instead of a joy. Right? Marriage has been affected by the fall. You say, well, mine has it. You are a liar. (laughs) It has been affected by the fall. When you got married to that wonderful person, you married a sinner. Right, And that's what he's acknowledging here is just the difficulty. And if it was Solomon writing it, boy, I'm sure he'd probably have numerous examples. But his point here is the fallen nature of man and how it's infected even the institution of marriage. So this passage is likely pointing back to the fall. Garrett actually points out that the Hebrew structure of the line in Genesis 3 and, and the line here in 7, when you look at it in the Hebrew, it's parallel. And there's a lot of that in Ecclesiastes. He's always looking back to the fall. So it makes sense. Due to sin in the world, marriages have issues. And this has been the case since Adam and Eve. Instead of man and woman embracing the roles in the marriage in a loving way, many times they war with one another trying to conquer one another. Trying to win. And this author is expressing the male view of that. Right? He even says, I found one man out of about a thousand that I can figure out. That I can understand. But I can't find a woman that I understand. That's what he's saying. A lady might say it this way, I found one woman among a thousand that I figured out, but I still can't figure out men. And he's speaking not to the women being more sinful than the men, but to the sinfulness of all and the difficulty of marriage due to our fallen nature. Sin is a universal issue and it's even struck your marriage. You know, sin has infected every institution. We talk about institutions. There's three, biblically. There's marriage, that was the first institution. There's government. And there's the church. And these are things that are all ordained by God. Okay, so God defines marriage. and Government was God's idea as a way to have good rule of law and justice. And in the church, obviously, Jesus founded and said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And sin has infected, he's saying, marriage. And I'm telling you, it's infected every institution. We can look at the divorce rate and infidelity rate. We can look at the political system. We can look at the government and situations that happen. There's no perfect government. None. Not even this one, that we love so dearly. It's not perfect. There's there's no perfect marriage. And there's no perfect church. This is why people struggle with trusting their spouse. Or they struggle with trusting a politician or a government official. Or they struggle with uh, trusting a church leader or the church in general. It's because people have let them down before. Because people are sinful. And sin has infected even our institutions. There's no perfect system. There's no... Perfect institution. In the end, he says, God made man upright, but man sought schemes. What's his point? He's saying, listen, God designed the world one way and man chose to live a different way. God made us without sin. He made us upright. Right? Made us in His image. And that image is marred in us because of sin that has come into the world ever since the very beginning. And there's coming a day When there will be no more sin. But that's not today. It's not right now. If we fail to view the world through a biblical lens and understand human depravity, we're bound to live unwisely and be very confused in our world. Apart from human depravity, how do you make sense of our current headlines? Shooting deaths, terrorist attacks, lack of trust in government, injustice, you name it. Our headlines are full of things to mourn. To mourn. I want you to imagine if you were to go and buy a house today on site and imagine you buy that house and you never knew it had something that could be very detrimental to the value of that house and that is termites. And you find out later it's incredibly infested with termites. You go lean on a door frame and it falls off, right? And you just, you can like hear them, right? And they're carrying your tables away and, right? It's like infested, right? It's bad with, with termites. And you didn't know that. You just kind of bought it sight unseen and you had no idea. And now you realize, man, I've got an incredible problem here. Would you have done things differently if you had known of the termite infestation in that home? Surely. You probably wouldn't have bought the house. You wouldn't have paid what you paid for it. Definitely. You are missing key information that would shape your perspective, your strategy, and everything. And it may help you understand the house and all the issues that it has. And in the same way, if we don't understand and accept human depravity, that this world is corroded by sin, and that people are broken due to sin, we're not going to be living life with all the info necessary to live wisely and make wise choices and to speak wisely in situations. I don't mean that tritely. This world is broken, and man is wicked. And I'm not trying to make you cynical, but I do want to make you biblical. So we have to beware that we wear certain generational goggles. And we wear certain political party goggles. And we wear certain cultural goggles. And we need to be making sure that we constantly acknowledge that and put on our Bible goggles. And see things through the lens of Scripture. So when you watch the news and read the headlines, understand this is a fallen world. Unjust things happen. People do horrible, condemnable things. And we live in a world where all people need to repent and need Jesus. And we have the only news in this world that's truly good news. We have the best news. But if you don't have a good grasp of depravity, if you become more politically centered than gospel centered, you won't live on mission with that news. The world needs the gospel that we have, the news we share And you can look at every institution and how broken the church looks right now at times and how broken the government can look at times and how broken our marriages look. And we can look at it and we can be real honest and go, we need the Gospel. We need renewal. We need Holy Spirit revival. And the fields are white unto harvest as they have been ever since Jesus said those words in the New Testament. And the question is, what's our focus going to be? It would be a shame for the fields to be wide unto harvest and for us to be silent, distracted, and unfocused. We need to be, as Jesus said, praying for workers in the field. And that first begins with me and you praying, send me. Send me into the harvest. Sin is a universal problem. Sin is a personal problem. Look at verses 21 and 22. Do not take to heart all the things people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Due to man's sinfulness, he says, do not take to heart everything you hear. Think that to mind. When you turn on the TV or log on to Facebook or open Twitter or whatever it may be or walk across the street to hear your neighbor. But here, he's talking specifically about what people may say about you. Here, he's he's saying, listen, be careful. Do not take to heart all the things people say lest you hear your servant cursing you. He's saying someone close to you is going to say something bad about you. Because people... Are sinful, and sinful people say and do sinful things. And his point is, in your heart, you know that you've done the same thing to others. You've said things that you shouldn't have said about other people. So, as you see others sin against you, temper that with the fact that you've sinned against others. Sin is personal, not just universal. You have sinned. I have sinned. So when I have sinned against, my reaction should be tempered with the humility and the self-awareness that I too have sinned against others. That's what Jesus was driving at when He said, don't go taking specks out of people's eyes while you walk around with planks in yours. No self-awareness. Right? Excuse me. You know, they're ducking. i got to get that speck out of your eye. He says, "You deal with your plank first. Right? Self-awareness. Sin is a personal issue. It's okay to call sin, sin. We better call sin, sin. But we better be calling our sin, sin as well. Or we're hypocrites. And people won't take us seriously. You should be more appalled by your sin than anyone else's. But we tend to not be as appalled at our flavor of wickedness. Don't be the guy. It's like the guy who goes out in his yard and he's yelling at the guy for always letting his dog over in his yard to, you know... Do what dogs do when they get in your yard. And the neighbor next door is thinking, well, your grass is like three feet high. I mean, I, I, I didn't think you would even know that that was going on. I didn't know you even really cared about your yard. Right? And they're getting in this fight, and they're getting in this, in this argument, and the one guy's pointing the finger at this guy, and the one guy's pointing his finger at this guy. And that's what we're kind of like when we go around t- pointing out everybody else's sin, and we don't deal with our own business and our own stuff. Know in your heart that you too have cursed others. <laughs> know that you've got sin, he says. The good news of the Bible is that wisdom personified showed up in the New Testament in Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Verse 20. There's not a righteous man on earth who has not sinned. That verse was absolutely true when Ecclesiastes was penned. And then came Jesus. And for the first time ever, there was a righteous man on earth who had not sinned. And who still today has not sinned. There's only been one person to ever live sinlessly. And Jesus is the only person to do that. He's the only person to take sin so seriously and to walk so wisely that He never committed it. He's the only one to take God as seriously as we're supposed to. He's the only one to live life with perfect wisdom and to avoid an ounce of foolishness and folly. A better life begins with a better man and that man is the Son of Man, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Wisdom begins there. Better begins with Jesus Maybe today you need to start taking life seriously and God seriously and sin seriously. Maybe it's time you took Jesus seriously. Maybe your life is riddled with foolishness. And maybe it's because it's still riddled and enslaved to sin. And you need to be set free today by Jesus. The one righteous man who came, who did not sin, who laid down his life, who became sin on the cross for us, took the punishment for our sins so that we could be saved from the wrath of God. So that you can be saved. So that I can be saved. So that everyone who believes can be saved. And three days later, he rose from the dead in justification. Death has been defeated in the person of Jesus Christ. Do you know Him? And Christian. We all want to live wisely. I've never met a Christian that said, I was going to be a fool. I've met a few that might be fools. Seemed like it. Did foolish things. I've done foolish things. But wisdom is sometimes found in hard places. Sometimes wisdom is found in the rebuke that you didn't want to hear. Sometimes it's found at the funeral. Are you taking life's serious enough that you approach life with wisdom, that you approach God with wisdom, that you approach sin with wisdom through a biblical lens? If not, today's a day to good day to get back on track. And to make sure that as we share words and say things that we're filled up before we start spilling out with the right things. The things of the Spirit, the Word of God. We'll give you a little word on our current events before we close. These have been very difficult days, weeks, and months even for our nation, our city. Now other cities, a lot of uncertainty in our world. Sin's effects, as we've just talked about, are being felt just way too vividly right now in our culture. And we've got to be, as the church, our role is to be the voice of wisdom. To be salt. In the days ahead, we need to focus on empathy and less on argument. Jesus never told you to defend your view. He did tell you to love your neighbor. He never said to always be right. Make sure you, you know, you fight for it to be right. He did say, love our neighbor. Josh, love your neighbor. So we need to be seeking to empathize and to love our neighbors in these day ahead, days ahead. Empathize and love on your law enforcement community. Listen and pray and love them. Empathize and, and love on the African American community and listen and pray and love. Let's be better disciples of Jesus in the days ahead than we are of our news outlets and our political pundits and of the left and of the right and all that sort of stuff. Let's make sure we're following Jesus. Because all those other people are sinners. They're sinners. And our way is the way of Christ. And whatever something's telling you here, over here, over here, over here, whatever it's telling you when it doesn't line up with Jesus, you part. We part with it at that point. It's not my job to try to line up with whatever cultural narrative I grew up with or whatever I've been sold on a news radio station or a TV station or to see things through a lens. Whoever wants to paint for me, it's my job to go the way of Christ. And Christ says, love your neighbor. Christ says, seek justice. Christ says, walk in humility with your God.